0: Hi, I'm Arlen Walker and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland and today I have another episode of the podcast, another episode 3.33 because for some reason I decided to call these all 3.33 instead of just using different numbers. I don't know why that was an idea but who knows. Anyway, um, so 3.33 is all calls from the past long while um 3.33 a was the first one that i thought would be the only one and then turned out to be not the only one so i split it in half and then 3.33 b got very very long also and so i split that in half and so this is the third section of calls from the last little while um and i have a number of calls um Almost all of them are, well, a bunch of them are Jason Connerly. And then I've also got a call from Che Webster. Um, I'm going to respond to these. I will also say, so I didn't actually, um, for 3.33B, one of the things that I um, talked about in the intro was that there was likely to be some kind of discussion of like real world religion, and politics, and all of that sort of stuff. And that um, I... Uh, did not get very much into that. There's a tiny bit of that in that episode, but there's likely to be a fair bit more in this episode. So if you are not interested in hearing some more kind of thoughts that are related to kind of real world, um, politics and religion and places that they intersect, um, and all of that, then I advise you to skip this one, which is totally fine, um, and all of that and um yeah so i think we are just gonna get into it and and get talking about recent episodes and calls and stuff
1: hey aril i just want to respond to part one of episode three three two yeah i don't disagree with you that a lot of the jabs made of christianity in america are at the hypocrisy of some of your evangelicals and things like that. But I do think Christianity is much more of a whipping boy these days in the modern era than Judaism or Islam or something like that. I think it's safer to make fun of Christianity than it is to make fun of the others. Not that it's okay to make fun of the others and not that it was okay in the past when it was more popular to make fun of those other religions. So I'm not defending making fun of any religion. Except Scientology, which isn't a religion, uh, as Jeremy has figured out. But up, oh, up to my minute. Time to call it back. All
0: right, I'm going to respond to this one um, real quick, which is to say, I sort of agree. I guess what I will say is, I think that um, I think that it is true that uh, there is a, a contingent of kind of. Christianity, And especially kind of I think there's a way in which sort of evangelical Christianity as uh, or, or kind of not just even evangelical, but specifically kind of conservative evangelical Christianity becomes sort of a, a stand in for like the evils of religion in general. If someone is trying to make an argument around that, um, especially on like certain parts of the Internet that are full of, uh, you know, really aggressive atheists and things like that. Um, although I think there's kind of a, an iffy thing there, which is to say that I think there is, um, you know, I think that's true when you compare, I think what Jason you're saying is true when you compare Christianity to Judaism, um, but less true when you compare it to Islam in particular, which I, we're getting very much into the sort of real world politics that I, um, I'm not necessarily uh, loath to uh, have any discussion around, but I do think it's, it's not really what people tune into live from Pelham's wasteland for, but I, I think there is a case to be made that um, especially in certain circles, there is a, a, you know, way in which kind of um, criticism of islam in particular not just on the basis of like criticism of hypocrisy and things like that but specifically of criticism of like specific um religious tenets and and things like that you know the the kind of um and and sometimes it's not even necessarily in the sense of specific criticism but the general use of kind of buzzwords right like the the way that um similar to the way that i think in certain circles um uh conservative evangelical christianity is sort of used as a stand-in for religion in general um things like you know for instance the the way that people sometimes use sharia law which is um a complicated um thing um but i do think there's a way in which it kind of um you know, the, the point being there's there's a whole lot of different forms of Sharia law, I guess you might say, and that, that you know, it's sort of used as a, a buzzword that means kind of religious-based uh, oppression or, or religious-based, um, you know, societal control, things like that, um, that is, I think, a a meaningful, uh, or, or a, a meaningful, uh, not necessarily a meaningful criticism in the sense of being like a, an attempt to make a, a specific point about Islam, but in the sense of being a, um, you know, not a, a, not something that we can just kind of gloss over in terms of sort of Western reaction to. Um, uh, the sort of cultural differences, right? And I think that's a complicated thing. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is I I think that I think it depends a lot on kind of um, where you are talking among other things that, um, for instance, you know, if you're uh, on a more left leaning space that criticism of Christianity tends to be much cooler in in a lot of more right-leaning spaces that's very taboo but similar similar criticisms of Islam are um, I think much more tolerated or even supported in some of those spaces and that's a a complicated thing to get at but um, I, I think we are in agreement that there is a lot of sort of criticism that is not criticism of religious beliefs so much as criticism of the use of religious beliefs as a tool for all sorts of various things, like the way that, you know, the homophobes like to quote Leviticus, but also uh, will happily eat shellfish and things like that. Yeah, I think you know what I'm getting at. Anyway, um, yeah, let's get back to Jason's calls.
1: I would point out though, you know, when you look at your your Christian population, you're looking at it from an American and a Western point of view, right? So when you look at the Eastern Orthodox Church, the last ecumenical council was in the eighth century. So the last major change to church doctrine was the eighth century. So the Orthodox Christian churches believe effectively all the same dogmas and all that they did in the eighth century hundreds of years prior to the Crusades you know um, so I think now mind you these Orthodox churches weren't involved in the Crusades aside from being you know attacked by the Catholic Church and during the Crusades right but still it's a, it's a point to be made that not all beliefs
0: And that is a really good point i'm going to step in again that jason brings up that i definitely um approaching it from kind of western european um perspective on christianity and that there are some major differences um you know the the catholic church and and you know the the great schism and all that sort of stuff and the division between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And then also the way that, you know, the, the reformation and um, all of that comes into play as well. Um, I, and I do think that gets into a sort of complicated, uh, well, I, I think that is a totally fair point. That, um, and, and especially that sort of goes into the kind of idea of um, sort of, you know, bashing uh, the believers for the, the sins of their predecessors that, you know, there is an important point to make about distinctions. Um, it, now, I will say, I think Jason is, uh, well, I think Jason knows enough about the history of the Orthodox Church to know that there are, even if not, the kind of um, large scale doctrinal decisions, there are some uh, fairly significant changes in the expression of Eastern Orthodoxy um, from the seventh century on. Um, And in particular, I think one of the big things that is uh, a kind of interesting detail that certainly something that I'm interested in has to do with the, um, you know, the, the, missionary work done by Eastern Orthodox um, missionaries, especially in modern day Eastern Europe and Russia, and the way that the Eastern Orthodox Church, especially after the fall of the Byzantine Empire to the Ottoman Turks, um, becomes much more centered in uh, kind of north of where it was originally centered in some ways as a kind of geographical entity beyond just a sort of theological one. And there is some kind of important stuff that happens there, which is, is I don't think it uh, undermines your, your point necessarily, Jason, but I do think it gets into kind of the importance of subtle historical understanding. And I will say to go on a digression because that's what I do on this podcast to talk about the crusades for a minute, that um, I think one of the things a lot of people um, do not recognize very much is the crusades as an expression of a um, essentially a historical process that starts much, much earlier. Um, when Rollo the Northman conquers what is modern day Normandy, um, and ends up becoming a subject of the French king, um, who might actually be the the uh, Carolingian king at that point, I don't remember for certain. But anyway, they the people end up speaking French. But one of the things that happens is that the Normans um, go all over the place and start conquering shit, right? So there's William the Conqueror taking over modern day England, but then there's also a lot of um, kind of minor conquests in um, places like the, the low countries, modern day Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, there's other areas kind of around England, um, in especially Southern Wales and in Ireland, there are these kind of Norman adventures. There's um, a huge chunk of Southern Italy ends up coming under control. Of kind of these Norman adventurer types who just kind of gather up an army and go out and conquer somewhere Um, they even end up uh, Bohemond of Toronto ends up um, not actually succeeding at becoming the uh, emperor of uh based in in Constantinople or, or Byzantium but um does attempt to do so and um, what i'm getting at has to do with the the one kind of way to interpret especially sort of the first crusade is as a kind of uh the the sort of height of this um, behavior, partly because um, very, very many of the kind of major names that are associated with the First Crusade were themselves um, either Normans from Normandy or Normans from places recently conquered by Normans from Normandy. Um, you know, um, Baldwin and Godwin and Bohemond and uh, i trying to remember all that. Hey. Clearly I need to reread my histories of the first crusades and all that sort of stuff. But the point being that I think there is a a really, um, and this sort of gets into what I was saying about the kind of need for um, close historical um, awareness and analysis that um, I think there is a way in which it's kind of more complicated than just, you know, Pope Urban the second decides to, you know, kill some people and send send the holy warriors to go kill the the other side's holy warriors type thing, um, which is a, an important piece of uh, understanding history. And, and especially I think what I'm getting at has to do with trying to understand history in um, subtle and detailed ways that are necessary for especially making kind of uh, judgments and and understanding of history right learning from history is dependent upon a a a subtle and a detailed and a um focused understanding of history right that you can't really get historical understanding from this sort of you know five miles up looking down and just sort of, you know, oh, look, some things, you know, the what you end up with is very, very kind of, um, you know, sort of super, super generalized, um, you know, like argument through Proverbs and stuff of, oh, well, history is all just wars. And it's like, okay, well, you know, sort of, there are a lot of wars in history, but there's a lot of other stuff too, right? There's, you know, a lot of things going on. And if you think history is just wars, maybe that, you know, sort of says more about, what you see as kind of historical events versus things that just kind of happened to happen, and all of that. And anyway, I'm getting way off track, but I, I, I really do appreciate your um, comment about the the distinction between um, Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Catholic Church as an important point when talking about historical and modern Christianity.
1: Sorry about that. Not doing good at keep them in calls into a minute segments. Not all religions have overly updated their dogmas and doctrines to what you, you know, you're know you calling modern times and modern beliefs. So, so I think that's important to recognize as well. But ultimately, your point stands that this is something you discuss with your group. If your group's okay addressing the subject at the table, great. If it's not okay, then the decision has to be made, you know, if you have one player that's not okay with it, is should they sit this game out and let everybody else play? Or should, and and this isn't making them a bad guy, right? It's just saying, you know, is this just not a game that, is a game you're going to run that just isn't for everybody? Or do we just change the game? And that's, again, a group decision.
0: I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think what um, I'm sort of, what, what Jason and I are both sort of getting at has to do with a, um, uh, there's a uh, an article that I remember reading that I, I can't remember precisely the name of, but specifically it talks about this idea of, um, I think the term that they use is, is geek Uh, fallacies. And the idea is of kind of things that people within kind of nerdy subcultures end up uh, believing or valuing that are not necessarily um, worth believing or valuing or not necessarily worth believing or valuing in kind of the uh, Uh, unconsidered and unexamined way that they sometimes are Um, one of the big ones I remember from that discussion has to do with the idea of um, kind of inclusivity and gatekeeping and all of that sort of stuff and I think we see this um, a number of places but you know it sort of gets into the idea of like you know people, you know, when you go on Reddit, and the idea of, you know, someone accuses somebody else of being a gatekeeper, and that's treated as an argument. And it's not really, which is to say that I think we all recognize some value in a level of gatekeeping, or or a level of kind of control over a space that we value, right, that you know, there's, a you know, if, your kind of gaming table is like your house, you don't necessarily want anybody to come into your house. You don't necessarily want anybody to come to your gaming table. And there are a lot of reasons to exclude people or to say, hey, this is not quite uh, the right fit or things like that. Um, And I think it is more about recognizing what are kind of appropriate reasons to do that and inappropriate reasons to do that than just on the basis of, you know, any type of exclusion is wrong. Because so I think one of the things you end up with with any type of exclusion is wrong is the potential for abuse by bad actors, um, which very much gets into kind of, uh, um, what's his name? I can't think of the the... So Richard Rorty, who does the the paradox of a tolerant society? I don't think so. I think it's somebody else. But anyway, there's this concept of um, paradox of 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 toleration or paradox of a tolerant society. And basically, the case is being made that you know you may believe in you know the the value of tolerance really really aggressively, but what happens when you come up against what what? happens if you tolerate someone who does not believe in the value of tolerance which is basically to say that um uh, i wish i could remember the the author's name but that they, they are basically making the case That, you know, actually a in order for a kind of, you know, modern style, uh, you know, tolerant society that's about, you know, respecting individuals, uh, beliefs and preferences and identities and all that sort of stuff to exist. You have to be willing to be a little intolerant to the people who aren't going to be tolerant, basically making the case that, you know, you have to kick the Nazis out of your society if you want to maintain a tolerant society for everybody else, because otherwise the Nazis will basically abuse your toleration. And it's it's a a similar thing, I think, in some ways to, um, like, the idea of no-tolerance policies um, with regard to uh, fighting in schools, that one of the things that that does um, is that, you know, I, I remember, so for instance, at the, the middle school and the high school that I went to, they had a very um, stated blanket, kind of no tolerance fighting policy, and I went to magnet schools. And so what they said was basically like, you know, if you get in a fight, we might just kick you out and you can go back to your, um, you know, local school. Um, now, I don't think they would have actually done that in most cases. I think what they did was they sort of said that as a way to kind of, have that, have it clear that that was on the table and not necessarily need to go that far um, in most circumstances. But one of the things that that does that is kind of important to understand is that a, a student who doesn't care about their status at the school that has a no tolerance policy is the one who controls the power, right? That, you know, what happens when You know, a bully doesn't give a shit about whether or not they get expelled and starts, you know, attacking someone who does give a shit about whether or not they get expelled. And the zero tolerance policy ends up doing kind of exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do and basically protecting uh, a person's ability to be a bully, right? Which is sort of where, you know, hopefully a principal would exercise their good judgment and say, you know what, you know, this, you know, kid who is getting picked on but who actually, you know, is gives a shit about their classes and their teachers say they're a good kid and all that sort of stuff is probably not at fault and all of that. But anyway, what I am getting at has to do with, I think, something that um, you and I are both picking up on that has to do with kind of the the value of like a, an um, a, almost uh, I, I saw it put on twitter at one point as the um what they were saying was that after a session zero they have a a stated policy that is part of what they cover in session zero that after a session zero or at basically any other time you are welcome to decide that you want to leave the game no questions asked you don't have to justify yourself or explain why you want to leave or anything like that you just you know stand up walk away and that's that um And there were, of course, some shitty people who were like, well, that's always been the case. It's just an unstated rule of being a good person. It's like, yeah, you know, one might wonder why you value the rule being unstated, um, but that's a different issue. Um, But what I'm getting at has to do with the idea of not every game for everyone, and that's okay, right? In the same way that, you know, not every movie or every book is created for every, uh, reader or film watcher, right? And that that's not just okay, but is sometimes sort of a good thing, especially when you get into, you know, the sort of uh, specifics of what you like, right? That there's all sorts of books that I really love that I think a lot of people would uh, not enjoy very much for a whole number of reasons, often because the things that I enjoy in reading are... Uh, weird and, and, and kind of self-consciously difficult and things like that. And anyway, what I am getting at is I think that you and I are both on the same page about the, the value of being clear and being um, mature about discussing these sorts of things with um, everybody at the table and of being willing to accept um, the ways in which tastes differ, right? And and that, you know, I I totally agree that there's a, a space for, you know, there's, you know, a, a, a GM and six players, say, and five of the players are really excited about the specific thing and one of the players isn't as excited. That's, you know, it's totally okay for that player to, do something else right in general obviously there are kind of other things that go into that right you know like for instance for my um, family games I wouldn't want to run a game that you know some members of my family enjoy and some of them don't enjoy because that feels unfair because part of what you know we all get out of the family games is you know being together and visiting with the family and that therefore it seems you know kind of shitty to say okay well you can you know leave and not enjoy spending time with the family or you can play this game that you don't really enjoy right that's a little bit different but that under kind of you know normal circumstances i guess to say that it's i think totally appropriate to um allow for and embrace the idea of, um, especially I think kind of, um, operating in your own self-interest with regard to gaming and, and comfort and fun and all of that sort of stuff, which is to say that, you know, if, uh, I, I think and not just your own self interest, but expecting other people to operate in their own self interest and 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 kind of push for what they're excited about too, right? Um, which is kind of a complicated thing, but I think it really gets into, you know, if somebody's not having fun in a game, it doesn't make any sense to, you know, try to punish them for leaving the game, right? That what that you're, you know mad about the idea that somebody wouldn't want to engage with a a a game that you happen to be in or something like that i i don't know but i i really do agree that i think it's a it's really a matter of what what the table is interested in and comfortable with and um in, in particular i think gets into the value of not leaving things unspoken, but of actually sort of being willing to directly discuss those sorts of things um, with your friends and, and talk about what sort of things you would like to play, right? And what sort of things you're comfortable with because, you know, it's a, a complicated thing, right? Anyway.
1: So, for example, if you or our buddy Carl said, hey, we're going to run a game of Colt, Divinity Lost, or we're going to run a game set in the Crusades and, and do this or that, you, you know, that's great. And, and I would never encourage people not to play that game. But depending what it is and what's going on, I may sit it out. And, and that's not saying it's anything wrong with anybody else playing it. It's not saying, it, you, you know, that people should change. For me, it's just saying that if if I choose to sit something out, I'm going to choose to do that, you know, and there's no judgment on the group for playing the game. But but I'm mature enough to know, hey, I'm not going to be interested in that, or, you know, that could potentially cause some hackles, and I'm just going to sit it out, and that way avoid that problem, and and I'll just play the next game with the group, and it's not a big deal. But I think that kind of brings us to the idea of this comfort level, or shame, or whatever we want to call it. And and that may be part of it, but I think more, like in my case, I don't talk, tend to talk religion with you guys because I separate out my, my religious stuff and my hobby stuff like I separate out my political stuff and my hobby stuff. Not because I don't enjoy talking religion or I don't enjoy talking politics, but I don't want to ruin gaming groups because people tend to get I'm not saying you, Ireland, would do this, but people tend to get people are weird, and people tend. Oh, you're that religion, or or you're that political persuasion. Well, I'm not going to deal with you, and it's not like that political persuasion. Like what member, what political party you're a registered voter for. But when you sit down and talk, you, you know, actual beliefs of certain things. You, you know whether it be certain issues in politics, or you talk about, you, you know, certain things as it goes with religion. Pe- people tend to be weird, and they tend, instead of doing the live and let live thing, there, there are people out there that that's going to turn them off, and they're going to start giving you the cold shoulder. And next thing you know, you're out of the group. Is that being embarrassed your religious beliefs? I I don't know. I I, I think not wanting to ruffle feathers or or wanting wanting to keep controversy separate is the important thing there if I don't know and maybe that's a lack of feeling maybe that's a lack of trust in the rest of the group not being willing to have those discussions I don't know so maybe it is a, a comfort shame thing I don't know
0: so I think I think Jason and I are are generally on the fairly a fairly similar page Um I don't think that what he is talking about is is as much based on kind of comfort and shame. Although I do think there is some of that at times, um, I but I think that has more to do with. Um, one of the things that I talked about in uh, another of the three point three threes that is the idea of, you know, the way in which kind of the the whole thing about, you know, don't talk politics or religion in polite company and that, you know, what we need is not. Um, avoiding talking about things, but figuring out ways, to more comfortably and more respectfully talk about things. And that that really is a kind of, I, I don't mean that as you need to figure out that, Jason, I, I really mean in, in your discussion that kind of everybody involved needs to figure out how to um, be comfortable speaking and listening, right? Cause that's a, those are two different, but related things, right. Kind of sharing your own positions and opinions and beliefs and all that sort of stuff and listening to other people's and, and not kind of, you know, having a, a, you know, knee jerk reaction to their kind of particular um, discussion or, 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 beliefs or anything like that you know and and i think you and i both i i think one of the reasons that we get along fairly well is that we tend to have both have a fairly um you know live and let live or a a kind of um you know not uh, it, i think in my case often it sort of ties into um almost disinterested, you know, I don't, you know, I don't really give a shit what you guys get up to. Right. Like don't bother me with stuff. I, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it often. Now there are people that I do want to hear about that sort of stuff from and, and Jason, you are one of them, but that as, as a sort of general rule for like interacting with people, I, I don't really like care and don't want to hear about it. Like don't, you know, Anyway, which is just to say that I I do think that um, you have a a more kind of considered position versus my kind of um, apathy masquerading as live and let live. Um, But that's a a whole nother thing. Um, Anyway, but, but I, I think that there is a good point there and, and that really ties into kind of what I was getting at and it has to do not so much Um, And I think that gets into sort of a a different version of the kind of discomfort that I think that there are times in which, and ways in which sharing can be uncomfortable. And um, sometimes they're uncomfortable for the person who is sharing. And sometimes they're uncomfortable for the person who is listening. Right. You know, um, and there's sort of all sorts of different versions of that. Um, But, you know, To use an example, I don't know how many people read um, Go Set a Watchman, which is the sort of not actually a a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. It's basically, for, for those of you who don't know, the actual kind of it was sort of presented as, oh, it's a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, when actually it's basically just a sort of rediscovered early draft of some of the similar stuff that was gonna go into to kill a mockingbird and like it's 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 provable that it was written actually before the kind of final draft of to kill a mockingbird was finished which is to say that it's not like a sequel it's sort of a a draft of a different ending of that book in some way anyway it was a whole thing when it came out and it's basically because um the i think it's harper lee's sister. Who owns the rights, who sold it for a whole lot of money um, because it's more Harper Lee stuff, and right. And she basically only wrote To Kill a Mockingbird as the kind of big thing, right? She didn't write other novels, and at least to the best of my knowledge. And anyway, um, which is part of why people think Truman uh, Capote wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, even though that's, you know. Also, kind of rooted in some fairly kind of misogynistic expectations about, you know, oh, of course, you know, the the you know clever male writer is the one who put the female writer's name on the book. Anyway, point that I'm getting at is that there's a a whole sequence. I'm going to spoil Ghost at a Watchman um, because it's not very good. Um, there's a whole sequence that involves Atticus Finch basically being a member of the KKK. Um, and justifying it as like, well, this is a way to kind of engage with these nasty racists and kind of try to sort of convince them to back down a little bit by being, you know, open and engaging and that for Scout, it's, you know, terribly uh, distressing because it's like, what the hell, this is, you know, my dad and these are bad people. And why the hell is he, you know, this, this sort of, you know, hero that I've looked up to my whole life. Why is he acting like this um which is basically to say what i'm getting at is a that ghost at a watchman is bad and it's not worth reading um and b that um what should we call it uh, about shame and the way in which uh sharing can be something that is distressing if somebody who we you know respect and care about turns out to um, you know, believe something that is very different than something that we believe or things like that. And I think that gets into the kind of, you know, knee-jerk response due to discomfort that often manifests itself in those situations. I think as, well, we just shouldn't share in order to be comfortable rather than, well, we should be willing to kind of talk about these things that we believe in order to kind of come to terms based on what we believe, right? That, that you know, the, the sharing isn't what caused the discomfort. The difference in um, opinion or value is what causes the discomfort. The sharing is just kind of what brings the discomfort to the surface, right? And that sort of gets into, and, and I really think that gets into my point about kind of needing ways to be able to speak about these things respectfully and honestly, but also in a way that is not necessarily just based on, you know, everybody's opinion is equally valued, a valid no matter what, without any kind of presentation of an argument or or justification or anything like that, Um, which is say some things I think are like that, you know, what people believe in terms of, you know religious or, or theological considerations, in my opinion, is is totally fair to do like that. But I don't think that everything political is like that. I think that there's a, a great deal of um, political belief among a whole lot of people that is in part based upon um, really unexamined uh, analysis and understanding of the beliefs, which is to say that it's a classic, right? What, what Socrates does in ancient Athens is he basically goes around and he asks people what they believe and he just asks them what, that for a while. And then he says, oh, so you believe this and this, but let me show you why those two are logically incompatible. And then instead of using that as a chance to examine their beliefs, the people get pissed at Socrates to the point where they, you know, uh, sentence him to death. Um and all of that. And and Socrates ends up. He doesn't let them kill him. He, he drinks the hemlock instead. But the point that I'm getting at has to do with um you know uh the logical incompatibility, especially of deeply held beliefs as a source of discomfort, and the way in which I think we as a all of us, everyone, um I don't think it is necessarily a a cultural thing so much as it is very much a human thing to be uncomfortable with those sorts of things, right? Uncomfortable with our own um, comfortable hypocrisy, for lack of a better term, right? The way in which um, everyone often has some kind of, you know, unexamined, logically incompatible beliefs that are basically just, you know, unexamined because that's comfortable and and the the kind of you know the point that i'm getting at has to do with you know learning to respond positively to discomfort rather than negatively and learning to stay uh, rational in uncomfortable situations. And and I think what um, I would say in response to your discussion about keeping things separated is that I I agree that there's a lot of value in keeping things separated. Um, And it very much, I think, depends on the situation, right? That, you know, friends especially you know if you you know see a post on a discord server that you rarely frequent that is asking for players right and it's you know somebody it's people that you haven't really interacted with at all and all that sort of stuff doesn't make very much sense to get into a sort of intense political discussion with people that you barely know as a kind of like element of playing the game right that you know if you're if the thing is, if, if everybody wants to play d d just, you know, play D&D. You don't have to get into intense political discussion. Um, but I do think there is a way in which we kind of, all of us a- and, and me in particular, that I kind of allow myself to uh, accept a, a sort of uh, comfortable but flawed situation um, rather than being deliberate about kind of focusing on kind of, I don't know, truth or, or logical compatibility or whatever, however else you might put it, all of, the, all of the things that can be uncomfortable to work through but are kind of important to having a, a considered and mature position on the world, I guess
1: but I think just keeping it separate and not discussing it and, and just doing the gaming stuff for the gaming and, and avoiding games that I'm not overly interested in for whatever reason I, I think lets me game with my friends and enjoy your guys company and hopefully enjoy my company and it, we, we, we don't get into hackles or into political or religious debates which is probably for the best so I don't know. That's kind of where I fall down on that. But I don't think your stance is wrong. I think there probably is something to the comfort thing. Although part of that, it, it maybe it's a not enough trust in your fellow group members, or it's just the desire not to rock the boat with the group members. And then the other part of that, of course, yeah. I, I think that's enough on that. Let me list listen the second half of your show.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's totally fine. And I I think there is, you know, it's it's a complicated thing, right? Because, you know, do you really want to, well, especially if, you know, we're here to play games, don't necessarily, even if we all agree about a lot of, you know, political or religious or whatever other things that are not gaming that we might talk about, you know, to what degree do we want to, you know, spend our time, talking about those things instead of, of playing games or doing gaming related things. And I think that's a, a point too. Now, I think that gets kind of taken the wrong, or taken either the wrong direction or too far sometimes, which is to say that I think sometimes the um, the kind of impetus of, well, we're all here to game, so let's just game can end up turning into a a kind of overvaluation of gaming at the table and an undervaluation of some of the kind of other things that go into creating a a fun game for everybody. And, And in particular, I think this is one of the things that sort of happens with rejection of safety tools that I think a lot of a lot of the rejection of safety tools when it is not kind of, you know, motivated that, that um, one of the kind of common elements of, of response by people who who are not interested in using safety tools at their table is some version of, well, we all just want to play games. We don't want to, you know, waste time with all of this other stuff. And, and I think that that is flawed, which is to say that I think that... Um, I mean, I think the, the obvious logical issue is, you know, you're assuming that playing games will be more fun than talking about safety tools, which is probably true. But if you don't have safety tools, what happens when the game becomes not fun? And and there's a, an obvious kind of issue there, I think. And, and anyway, that, that kind of gets into a, a whole separate line of discussion that we don't necessarily need to get into here but I, I do really agree about the the kind of you know there is a, a, a value to and, and especially I think being willing to embrace a um, you know kind of you uh, 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 that live and let live attitude, essentially, right, that, you know, I think one of the big things that gets me is people who, you know, want to proselytize, but don't want to be proselytized to, right, people who want to, you know, engage with you to convince you of something that they believe, but don't have any interest of, you know, changing their position in response to what you say in return, right, and that's a big, kind of thing i i I get into that with um you know i I see that as a thing with having been on the internet for a number of years regularly um i have gotten into more than a few arguments with randos on the internet and one of the things that i think happens often is um both in kind of arguments that i've been in and arguments that i've seen is that if one side of the argument, for lack of better term, is, is winning, for for lack of better term, is, is making logically supported points and kind of, you know, tearing down the other person's argument and all of that sort of stuff that the person who is losing, essentially, um, will sometimes respond with something like, okay, well, we can just agree to disagree. And I think the reason that that gets me so much is that um, it's sort of a tacit admission that, the person who is losing was never really interested in changing their position, right? They, they weren't really, they they wanted you to be willing to change your position in response to their argument, but they weren't really ever interested in changing their position in response to your argument, which gets into kind of, you know, rules for the, and not for me or, or hypocrisy or however you want to put it. That sort of, you know, it's, it's like a lot of things, right. That, you know, when you step into the arena, you kind of have to be prepared to, To take hits in addition to dishing him out, right? You know, live by the sword and die by the sword type thing. However, you want to put it, that the the kind of you know way in which sort of you know, in the case of an online argument, right, putting yourself into a space where argumentation is a part of what the interaction involves means being prepared to kind of take arguments back. Right. And that that I think is a, a real kind of it's something that certainly very, very much kind of sets me off in terms of, of kind of, you know, fury and spite and all of that sort of stuff when I see someone who is, you know, well, let's just agree to disagree even though I am losing this argument and haven't really made any good logical points. I just, you know, we can just agree to disagree. It's like, okay, well you were never actually interested in revising your position to respond to the, your, your, the other side's argument. You just wanted to argue at them instead of with them. Right. Anyway, um, that's a, that's a whole nother thing and kind of speaks to my own kind of personality and issues more than anything else but um yeah i guess i guess i i i really do agree with you and and really appreciate you kind of calling in and um you know the the sort of general level of of sort of respect and discussion that i like to cultivate on this podcast even though i don't always succeed at that
1: hey arlen You'll be happy to know I found the first part of the show just as interesting as the second, if not more interesting, more thought-provoking. The, you're totally right, though. I mean, mythology wasn't a fixed thing. You you know, some gods faded into obscurity and were replaced by other ones. You know, we see this with probably all mythologies. I mean, we definitely saw it with Egyptian mythology, right? So so in all the—and and we know in Norse mythology, like you say, they are different— you, you know, different gods were the top of the heap at different times and things changed. So, and that's definitely something you can bring into your games without a question. I think the idea of how many clerics are in the world for each deity and each religion is an interesting one and something you probably should think about in your campaigns, you know, how prevalent that magic is and that divine magic and and what kind of presence the various churches have in your world my thought is it's probably best for the deities to have a hands-off policy to the world itself that the adventurers live in in a game you know whether that's enforced whether it's a treaty they've agreed on whether it's because they have to act through agents or through their clergy i don't know that's something you have to figure out in your own world lore but i think that's probably better than you know doing the greek your your more classic greek god idea where they come down and it, more than your like your original Clash of the Titans where they're willy-nilly messing around with what's happening. Uh, I, I think it's maybe more interesting if they have to act through agents through their clergy or through you know influencing other people but not actually appearing themselves or having their avatar appear themselves to, to interact with the world uh, But I don't know I, I mean obviously that's gonna depend on each campaign.
0: Well, I'm glad that you found both halves interesting. Um, I, I really uh, was not too worried, but I do think there's a way in which, kind of, getting back to the thing about discomfort, that you know, some of the, the discussion of sort of real world religion um, can make people uncomfortable, right? And that's to be expected um when getting into something like that but i think that's often a reason why people don't enjoy that sort of thing right and um so anyway i'm I'm glad you enjoyed it um and yeah the kind of um fluidity of mythology and and especially the kind of way in which there's a sort of at times what i would describe as like a a semi-systematized element which i think gets into kind of a weird thing with um Uh, D&D, and and to be fair, it's not so much just D&D, but also kind of back to Michael Moorcock, that Moorcock has these chaotic deities that follow a structure that is the same as the lawful deities, and you go, wait a second, this is like, this is like in, you know, warhammer fantasy where it's like yeah chaos is like the destruction of all order and dedicated to the kind of you know absolute elimination of you know orderly structure as an element of existence which is why there are four chaos gods that have sort of split up the different spheres of chaos between all of them in order to make sure that nobody kind of gets into anybody else's territory it's like wait a second there's something a little fishy going on there. Why Why are the chaos gods following the theological structure that that implies, right? In the same way that, you know, Moorcock's chaos deities follow a kind of similar sort of structured element. And there's something kind of weird there. And that gets into sort of D&D and this idea, you know, one of the things that I think of immediately when you talk about like, well, maybe there's a treaty is like, okay, but, you know, the lawful deities, I can totally see why they follow the treaty, but what about the chaotic deities, right, all of the, the, you know, chaotic do whatever I feel like sort of gods are they really bound by the treaty too and how does that work right are they are they choosing to follow a treaty or choosing to behave in this particular way And I think that sort of gets into kind of an odd thing about sort of law and chaos and and the way that maybe what's sort of needed is something kind of, I think about, especially kind of in terms of Greek mythology, right? That the distinction isn't so much between law and chaos. It's it's, Titanic and Olympian as a distinction. And the Titans have an element of sort of what we would describe perhaps as chaos definitely within them, but they are not inherently chaotic. They are a different, a fundamentally different order rather than a lack of order, right? Kronos is the king even if he's a different sort of king than Zeus is, right? Typhon, Typhon has this kind of chaotic generative element to him, but it speaks to kind of a very different um, order, right? The way in which, right, what's bad about Typhon is not that he is kind of the end of all order. It's that he is super, super powerful, and that he functions very differently, right? That his order is different than all of the other stuff around him, and because he's so powerful, his order becomes what what defines the space that he's in. And so, you know, if if the gods don't put it, lay down the 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 kick ass, unleash a can of whoop ass on Typhon, he's going to end up, you know, fucking up everything for everybody else, sort of thing, right? And then that's a that's different than kind of. a a sort of true kind of law versus chaos structure. Um, It also gets into speaking of fluidity. um, I, uh, in Gods of the Northmen, Georges Dumasil makes the case among other things that um, the kind of original, original version of the Norse pantheon had a fairly different structure. Um, And he sort of makes the case that Tyr, who, for those of you who don't remember Tyr, T-Y-R, is a um, somewhat minor war god. He doesn't appear in that many stories. Um, The most famous story about him is that he puts his hand into the mouth of Fenris the wolf as a sort of surety for Fenris' freedom. That basically... um, the gods say, hey, Fenris, wouldn't it be cool if we tied you up and you broke out? And Finris is like, yeah, okay, but you know, put somebody's hand in my mouth so that I can be sure that you'll let me go if I can't break out. And the gods basically say, well, what are we going to do? The whole point is to tie Fenris up and not let him out. And Tyr says, you know what? I'll take one for the team. And he sticks his hand in Fenris's mouth. And, of course, they tie Fenris up with a a magic ribbon sort of thing after Fenris breaks through some chains. And he can't escape. And he's like, hey, okay, let me go. And they're like, no. And Fenris is like, okay, then chomp. And Tyr loses his hand. Anyway, um, Tyr has a number of kind of elements that he's associated with um, in particular uh, kind of war and uh, justice and honor as kind of related concepts and the sky um, and the justice and honor thing. I mean, you can pretty clearly see that in the, 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 the hand biting off sequence. Um, George's Dumazil basically makes the case that Odin who has some overlap there, right? Odin definitely has a fair bit of purview over war, but Odin is, especially in the actual sort of stories, um, presented in a very un-Zeus-like way often, which is to say that he, rather than being this kind of, you know, grand king on his throne, is often this kind of wandering sorcerer type. And, and actually, uh, Odin... Uh, in Norse mythology provides a a major inspiration for the character of Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings or Gandalf the Grey, not as much Gandalf the White. But anyway, um, he's this kind of wanderer who has this sort of esoteric magical knowledge and he has this command over sorcery. And there's, you know, Odin is not just a a sort of warrior and a king, but he is also the... um, creator of the runic alphabet and this is one of the the sort of major things that he does is that he creates the runic alphabet and therefore um the written word and in particular written poetry is is odin's domain also um which is to say that and it sort of comes out of a different there's a whole thing with mimir and mimir's head and the blood that comes out of Mimir's head that is the sort of source of poetry and all that. Anyway, getting way off track, but basically Georges Dumasil makes the case that in a sort of original version, Tyr was probably the king of the gods and Odin was actually sort of a a member of the court, essentially, right? Like the court shaman or the, the court wizard type. And that Tyr was in charge and that somehow in the process of historical development, what happened was that basically a kind of structure that we would recognize as more similar to a number of other Indo-European mythologies where kind of Tyr as Zeus and Odin as this sort of shadowy um, mystical figure that is kind of associated with the court, but is not necessarily a little bit like... um... Well, it's kind of complicated for the, the Greek mythology connection, but a little bit like the way that some of the titans get kind of reintegrated into the Roman version of classical mythology and, and Hecate in particular. Um, anyway, but and that somehow in the process, one of the things that happens is that Tyr gets unseated and Odin becomes the king somehow. Um, but that the story is not... Odin unseating Tyr, the story is that Odin has always been king, right? The the sort of, you know, 1984, we have always been at war with Eurasia type thing Um, that, you know, the the kind of traces of that historical development are left within the stories, but that the stories don't necessarily engage with that particular historical development. And it's kind of an interesting, it's a really interesting argument, I think, and and something to think about in terms of... um, game world mythologies and this idea of kind of static versus dynamic mythologies in particular kind of you know do the relationships between the gods in a setting change over time were they different at one time or is it a sort of a glorantha thing where well there was the sort of before time and there's all this stuff that happened before time actually happened and now there's time but also all the before time or non-time stuff is sort of also happening at the same you know not the same time but in in the same kind of you know world too in some ways right there's all that. Anyway, all of that is to say that I think there's some really interesting stuff that you could do with that. Um, some of those sort of ideas. um, And I would very much like to talk more about them, but my throat is getting sore and it is late. And so I'm going to have to pause the recording here and respond to the very last call of this collection of calls from Jay Webster. Hey Alan, it's Jay. Thank you very much for your recording your
1: uh, thoughts on religion and RPGs. I really did enjoy it, and I think you're right. Your instinct is right in that there are many, many little details and things that you dropped into that uh, that discussion um, that you know weren't planned, but were actually quite interesting. So particularly interesting in those books that you recommend, you recommended, and um, yeah, I agree with you. The subtleties of um, real world um, mythology, world or religious uh, tradition and practice is also entirely fascinating. That's what keeps me going, you know, in, in what I do. Um, so, yeah, I still think there's, there's room for us to have a chat. I think we could perhaps talk about some practicalities. I think maybe it would be nice to talk about how we could bring some of this to the table. And especially, man, if we're talking about building a solo, joint, shared world, well, maybe religion is a great place for us to start. What do you reckon? Game on, man.
0: Yeah, so my good friend, Che Webster. Um, well, thank you for uh, providing a sort of catalyst for actually recording the the religious discussion. Um, if you remember from that episode, listener, I played one of Chase Collins at the, the beginning of that episode. That's uh, 3.32. And um, I basically, that was a uh, a sort of thing that kind of pushed me to actually kind of get something recorded. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that there would be a, there's a great space to, to talk about all of these things and to, to, you know, move from kind of lecture to dialogue mm-hmm. on uh, a lot of these kind of elements of, of historical and in some ways, modern religious beliefs and and mythologies and things like that. Um, and I would love to sit down and chat about that. Um, I agree there's there's so many kind of really uh, fascinating kind of bits and pieces that I think um, I think as with a lot of uh, sort of um, understandings of of history, there's a way in which a number of the kind of interesting and and distinct pieces kind of get lost in translation into popular culture at times. Um, in particular, I was thinking about this with regard to there's a, a game that... Uh, has come out of early access just recently. It's called uh, King Arthur, A Knight's Tale, and it's by a company named Neocore who made a series of real-time strategy games that were based on the the story of King Arthur. Um, But in this case, it is not a real-time strategy. It is a a turn-based kind of ex strategy. You you sort of command a a squad of knights, um, and there's a sort of... Kind of like XCOM, there's a sort of battle phase and kind of out of battle phase where you do different things. So out of battle, you kind of, you know, recover all of your uh, dudes and and give them upgrades and things like that. And in battle, you, you know, command them to kick ass. Um, Anyway, but one of the things about it is that they sort of advertise it as it's kind of like a, you know, interesting kind of dark fantasy twist on Arthurian lore. Um, And while I like the other Neocore games, the ones that I have, and I will probably end up buying this one knowing myself, um, in my opinion, this is uh, very dumb and very silly, which is to say that I think that the actual material of Thomas Mallory's Lamar to Arthur is much more kind of distinct than what they ended up kind of coming up with that to me feels very much like this kind of, uh, I don't know, it's it's hard to kind of describe exactly, but that it feels very kind of generic dark fantasy with Arthurian elements in it, right? That there's all of this kind of, you know, there's, yeah, there's some cool you know stuff going on, but it's all just sort of normal dark fantasy stuff, right? That a lot of the kind of, you know, really cool shit from Thomas Mallory's stuff, that the kind of really distinct, uh, the, the distinct elements that um, make Thomas Mallory's LaMorte d'Arthur so kind of unique, a lot of them aren't actually kind of there in in this kind of version. And and I think that actually sort of is not really entirely Neocor's fault. I think that's sort of the fault of kind of consumer expectations, uh, uh, which is to say that I think if they did something that really felt like Thomas Mallory, people would be like, what on earth is this shit? Like, this is just like, insane nonsense how does any of this you know what what on earth did you know the you know go through like a battle in a single paragraph and then spend you know chapters and chapters talking about the death of lamorak de gallus what why that's so weird and then you know basically people would kind of react based on the kind of mismatch between the the reality of the thing and their expectations of it um and i think that very much sort of gets into uh, i think there's a similar thing with a lot of mythology and a lot of historical stuff right i think that's one of the big issues of kind of historical simulationist play is the way in which um Sometimes historical simulationist is kind of actually attached to real history, and sometimes historical simulationist is a sort of weird idea about history that doesn't necessarily have nearly as much to do with the kind of you know actual historical reality, but very much to do simulationist being a sort of catchphrase for the idea of well, this fits my expectations about what this historical period was like rather than kind of, you know, what the period was actually like Um, anyway, which is a whole thing that we don't need to get into here. But yes, I would love to talk uh, religions and mythologies and all of that sort of stuff. And Che uh, mentioned it, but I, I am sort of working on we, or I should say we are working on this idea that um, I sort of presented to him of a, shared setting um that is kind of not necessarily inherently built for solo play but part of the idea is that people could play solo adventures in the setting and then kind of report back on the you know elements of the world that they uncovered in their adventure and add that into the kind of larger lore of the setting but kind of in a uh, we're sort of working on a kind of uh, uh, a sort of uh, storytelling or, or or bardic lore kind of way to do that, that it's kind of like, you know, use the pieces that you want and kind of ignore the rest as being sort of, um, you know, tall tales that have just sprung up from you know all of these stories rather than being kind of the the truth right and that you know there's there's kind of clever things that you can do with that um a a sort of sense that it's it's kind of all the same setting but everybody's version of the setting varies right and maybe mythology is a good place to start with that um i've definitely kind of wanted to do something with a little bit of that concept in mythology and, and sort of an idea of like, what if you had like, you know, multiple cultures, which all have sort of somewhat related pantheons that are all kind of, you know, different uh, expressions or different kind of partial understandings of kind of the whole theological structure of, this kind of setting right so if you have like a like an ersatz vikings and an ersatz celts and they both have these kind of pantheons um but the kind of viking version of the story is a little different than the sort of celtic version of the story in the way that there are some similarities and some differences between sort of um celtic pre-christian mythology and, and norse mythology and sort of Having that be, well, maybe there is sort of like one deity that appears in both religions or or both pantheons, but under kind of a different name and in a slightly different expression and that there's, you know, something kind of interesting going on there. Um, Sort of like one kind of truth that is distorted in a number of different expressions, if that makes sense. Um, which might be an interesting kind of thing to do in a in a game um anyway but yes i i would very much love to to chat religions and mythologies and all sorts of other stuff whatever we end up getting into with you chay sometime i think that would be a whole lot of fun um yeah and and thanks again for uh given me the kind of, you know, swift kick in the rear to get get working on something that I wanted to do but was having some resistance to. Because um, sometimes you need that. You know, sometimes you need your friends to give you a bit of a, a, a kick to get going. Um, anyway, so, yeah, that is going to be the end of this episode. Um, hopefully everybody who uh, called in, got something out of my responses. Um, I uh, hope everyone, hope you all enjoyed. Hope Everyone is doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and having lots of fun gaming. Um, I should be back later this week. If not on Thursday, hopefully on Saturday. I'm trying to get back into the kind of regular schedule of podcasting that i have not kept up with as well recently um i've had some kind of real life health issues that i've talked a bit about in some of the podcasts and i will probably talk about a bit more in my next episode which is not going to include any collins but going to be just me talking about whatever i want to talk about um and all that so anyway um yeah i hope uh to be back in your podcatcher soon and, uh, you know, whispering, uh, sweet heresies into your ears as you drive around or whatever else. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.